welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about Has Gavel Will Travel? And that um, is the new book by um, my guest, the um, U.S. Magistrate Judge Robert Braithwaite. And um, his, actually the full title of the book is Have Gavel Will Travel? A National Park Judge Reflects on Truth, Justice, and Why Every Juror Deserves a Donut. And of course we're going to have to ask him about that. Uh, judge Braithwaite has been just about every kind of judge you might imagine, except perhaps not, not yet a Supreme Court justice, but he's been a circuit judge, a district judge, juvenile judge, a pro tem Utah Supreme Court. Well, he's been on the Utah, Utah Supreme Court, uh, a Utah Supreme Court judge, and now a U.S. magistrate judge. And he has had a 27-year career. He's now working as a part-time magistrate judge, which uh, has given him the time, obviously, to write a book, his, own, his memoir about the various cases that he has um, sat on the bench for. Um, and I, I, I'm sure that, especially with all the cases in the news, uh, ever since the O.J. case, the trial of last century, um, we have had an interesting and amazing fascination with trials. And, um, you know, trials are either broadcast live or the gavel to gavel or they're, um, at least, at least some part of it is shown or certainly <laughs> it is talked about incessantly on various talk shows and news programs. And I know because I've been part of that. But what we want to know or certainly not only, um, what the public, I'm sure, wants to know, what all of you, I'm assuming, want to know, especially if you've had a case in court, and have left scratching your head wondering what just went on and left feeling that perhaps the judge didn't understand you, the jury didn't understand you, you didn't get the uh, decision that you were hoping for. Certainly that happens a lot in uh, custody cases um, and other kinds of cases. And so there's, there's this whole mystique about judges. And um, as for those of you who have listened, been, been loyal listeners, so you don't even have to listen that many times to know that one of the hats that I wear is as a psychiatric expert witness. So I am particularly um, consumed by the, uh, by the question of what was that judge thinking? <laughs> of course, sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm happy with the way, most of the time I'm happy with the way that they're thinking, but, I mean, in terms of the outcome, but... Um, it still really befuddles me because as a psychiatrist, um, I look at their decisions and wonder, even when it comes out in my favor, which, you know, fortunately, uh, that has, is the typical, typically what happens, but still, I wonder what, what went on in their childhoods, what went on in their life, that what experiences did they bring to this courtroom that, of course, is coloring how they see everything, just like it colors how we see the world. You don't have to be a judge to be influenced. Everyone is influenced by their childhood and by their experiences, and, and that makes um, our perspective on things. And so, so it's one thing, you know, when you walk around and you, I don't know, you have some experience, and, of course, you bring your experiences from the past and so on. It's another thing when that is in the back of your mind and you are called upon as a judge to make decisions or to not even, you know, I'm not just talking about um, uh, delivering verdicts but uh, or delivering sentences, I mean, making things where it's up to the judge's discretion but I, in some cases. But I mean just in general there are much more subtle ways, and I'm sure my guests can talk about that, much more subtle ways in which judges influence consciously or unconsciously what goes on in the courtroom. So... For all of that, <laughs> all of these questions that we bring uh, to the bench, um, I'd like to welcome Judge Robert Braithwaite. R Robert, well, Judge Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad um, to you be didn't on. know you were in for all of that, right? I was, that's, no, I was curious. I, 
I wondered what what does she want with me, and what can I what can I uh, where are we going with this? I'm I'm happy to answer any questions. I can't talk about any pending cases. Judicial sure. uh, ethics sure. forbid that, and so in my book I talk about the cases that are over and mm-hmm. cases that I have handled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, why don't we start with that? I won't put you on the hot seat right away, but it is true that, you know, on Dr. Carroll's couch I do, because I'm always interested in what makes guests tick, whether they've written um, a book, any kind of book, or, you know, I want to know why they wrote that, why this particular topic interests them, or, um, you know, or any other kind of situation. I always like to know why someone, how someone got to this point in life, you know, what happened in, in their life beforehand that brought them to this point. So why don't okay, we start... Okay, taking the first part first. Go ahead. I ended up writing this book. It sort of developed. I was on a judicial panel. Uh, it was dry. I was dry. It was kind of boring. Mm-hmm. And they finished with some extra time. And uh, the panel leader said, uh, Bob, why don't, you, why don't you tell the group, it was federal attorneys at a federal uh, judicial conference, or a bar conference, what you told me about why you like the job you have now and, mm. and, the, and the spectrum of cases you hear. So I did. So it'll take a couple of minutes, but if I can tell that. Sure, sure, go ahead. I, I just said, okay. Uh, a couple of months ago, I had a, a day where I thought, this is why I like this job. For 16 years, I did every kind of case from, as a state judge, from parking tickets to uh, rape and and uh, uh, child custody and death penalty cases. And after 16 years, I was kind of burned out, and I saw this job come up, and I thought, that's perfect. Work in the national parks, do misdemeanors in the front end of felonies, so I'll do that. But anyway, on one day, the same day, in June of 2009, I'm watching an NBC uh, special on the new president, and I'm watching it with my wife, and ironically, I get a phone call, and a voice I don't recognize says, I'm Agent Lemon with the Secret Service. There's been a threat against the president. I'm with the uh, uh, prosecutor in St. George, which is an hour drive, drive from where I am, we've completed the complaint and arrest warrant, and I would like to come to your house and swear to them. And I said, okay. Yeah. Uh, and so he said, I'll, I will email you the documents. So he emailed as an attachment the complaint and the arrest warrant. And in the complaint, it says, and I open it up while he's driving up, uh, and it says that a, a, a man has deposited $85,000 in a bank account uh, in uh, St. George uh, with a cashier's check and made some vague, threatening comments about the president and concerned people. And then a week later, he came back and withdrew that 85000 in cash and made specific threats against the life of the president and said people are going to rise up and take care of him. Words to that effect. I've got it. The specific quote in the in the book, mm-hmm. um, and the the Secret Service had done some research on him in the meantime in an investigation, and he had seven firearms registered to him and in a history mm-hmm. of violence. And the president was going to speak in Las Vegas, which is two hours away, at a fundraiser for Harry Reid two days later. So uh, I, it's a warm summer evening. I set out some lawn chairs on mm-hmm. the. Uh, front lawn. He arrives. I make sure that what I read uh, on the email attachment is the same as the paperwork he hands me. Uh, We're sitting in our chairs in our polo shirts and Levi's or whatever, just dressed casually, and I raise my right arm and say, do you swear the allegations contained in these documents are true and correctly rest your knowledge and belief? He says, yes. Um, I signed the documents. He says, do you have a fax machine? I say, no. He says, well, I, I passed the Marriott down by the freeway. I'll go down there and use their fax machine because um, uh, Washington wants these. And I thought, this must look funny to the neighbors, us sitting in chairs and going through this arm-raising routine and everything. <laughs> and he goes on his way. Then before I go to bed, I open up my... Uh, 
uh, go to my computer, and on the other end of the spectrum, I've got a report from Lake Powell. I don't know if you've ever been there. A lot of Southern Californians come to Lake Powell, big lake uh, uh, on the Arizona border uh, created by Glen Canyon Dam. Anyway, mm-hmm. a, it says in the report a teenager, for whatever reason, he's a teenager, throws rocks at a duck and hurts the duck but the duck is slow and dying and is in a lot of pain. So a nice couple having a picnic say, oh, my gosh, we got to do something about this. And so they go after the duck to snap its neck as a mercy killing. The duck runs from them. They, they chase it into a new area of other picnickers who haven't seen the first event. And... Uh, try to kill the duck, only it takes a while to dispatch it, and it's making awful noise, and a bunch of picnickers call 911, and the park service converges on the scene, arrest the wrong guy, or I mean, the guy that's just trying to do a mercy killing, and Uh then they end up arresting the teenager, and I'd say, you know, it it just shows the spectrum of cases that I hear. So after that, the guy <laughs> well, that was in charge of the conference did. We need to take a break. Um, okay. We're talking today with Judge Robert Braithwaite, uh, and who has just written a book called Have Gavel, Will Travel. We'll be back with more of his tales, true tales, from the bench. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with Judge Robert Braithwaite today, who has written a book called Have Gavel, Will Travel. Um... And we were just before the break, we were talking about this poor duck. <laughs> I don't know if you heard my lame joke, but I was talking, I said, went from one dead duck to a lame duck. But, um, <laughs> but anyhow, so, so they arrested the poor man who was trying to help the duck by killing it, and, and then the, I assume these people arrived in your courtroom. Yeah, they, the Park Service filtered uh, it out, let him go, arrested the kid, and by the time the kid made it to my courtroom. I came to find out they hadn't told me. He was underage. His mother says, look, he's only 17 in high school, so I referred it to juvenile court, and uh-huh, they uh-huh. took it over from there. Uh-huh. And as I was saying during the break, the, afterwards, the the coordinator of the conference said, how about coming back next year and, and do like a half hour on these kind of things? And then I had people saying, why don't you write a book? And so mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. what I so did. That's how the book was born. Um, yeah. Especially since now you're doing this part time, so it gives you time to gave you time to write it and promote it. That's, um, that's right. Why don't you when when in the story about the um, Secret Service man? Weren't you? How what did you do to prove that the man was who he said he was? He had he had his federal ID with him. Uh huh. 
and I'd talked with a prosecutor who I work with all the time, and he vouched for it. Uh-huh, so, okay. Because yeah. I would have thought, you know, this, was this a, a, a crank phone call? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, all right. Um, now, in your book, you talk about how you know, a lot of, and I know this is true, how a lot of lawyers and judges um, were inspired by the Perry Mason uh, TV show, but that right. that wasn't your inspiration because your parents had, didn't want you to watch TV because they wanted you to read and be imaginative and, and play and do all those right. kinds of good things. Um, so what was your inspiration? What made you become, let's start with a lawyer first. What made, I mean, did you always know that you were heading up or hoping to head up the path to becoming a judge? No. I. This is not an inspiring tale. <laughs> uh, I went to law school. I was interested in political science. What do you do with a political science degree? Nothing much. You can go to law school. Right. So I went to law school. Went to law school, started practicing law, looked at the judge on the benches and, and thought, huh, I might want to try and do that. And when the opportunity presented itself, I applied and got appointed. Uh, so it was not a, a lifetime dream like with, with a fair amount of people. Uh, it just sort of developed that uh, I liked what I was doing as a lawyer and and uh, being a judge looked like an interesting thing to do. Now, they never give you courses when you become a judge, like um, on on how to not allow your biases, your you know past experiences get in the way of justice. Um, yes and no. About six months after I got appointed, I went to uh, the National Judicial College. Uh, for a two-week training, and they talked about some things like that. And then you, you know, from the code of, of judicial ethics, and and the, I guess just innately that you're not supposed to bring. Everybody brings their history with them to some degree. You can't avoid it, but you got to be aware of it, and you have to uh, guard against it. In just the interest of fairness, um, you you have to set aside your personal. Uh, preferences and biases as much as much as you can, and if you can't, uh, especially in a small town like mine, usually you can set them aside. But sometimes you say, "I can't hear this case. I know the defendant. I had a bad experience with him. Uh, if I were in his shoes, I would not mean want me to be the judge. Mm-hmm. We had two district judges in my county, and so I'd step aside." and let him hear the case and vice versa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess first as a lawyer, um, you must have been in courtrooms where you thought to yourself, you know, what was that judge thinking? Sure. And sometimes it was probably on me. Sometimes it was probably that I was too wrapped up with my client or my point of view, and maybe sometimes the judge did make a mistake. Uh, and it's like I tell lawyers, at conferences, I don't like getting reversed on appeal. Mm-hmm. And when it happens, I get kind of angry, and then I and then I have to think it through and think. Look, you got to put that on the shelf, move on to the next case. And you, you attorneys, have to do that too. When I rule against you, it's not personal. It's because I thought the evidence and the law favored the other side. And in fact, I used to have jurors occasionally tell me afterwards when I would meet with them, you know, we ruled for this party, but we thought the other attorney uh, actually did a better job. It's just that we thought the facts and the evidence went the way that we went, but it's not, mm-hmm. not always that they think the winning attorney was the better attorney. That's not the case, and, that, and that's my view as a judge. It's mm-hmm. not always that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of the kinds of cases that I think is most... Um, most likely to touch on um, personal spots in a ju- for a judge is um, custody cases because sure. you know most people have spouses, <laughs> a spouse at a time, and um, and um, they you know so and and children and so um, you know so it touches very clo- literally close to home. So what I mean do. What have you, uh, you've handled some custody cases. What has been your experience with that? I've handled a lot of custody cases, and after the most difficult, heart-wrenching cases 
are death penalty cases, especially if the jury is waived and you have to decide. I had that happen in one case. But after that, for me, I mean, you heard a lot of horrible cases that were other criminal cases. I don't want to minimize that. But deciding, uh, having a divorce case was too flawed, but uh, decent people who want custody and they can't work it out because they can't get along and they can't resolve it. If they can resolve it, 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 it doesn't make it to you. But anyway, going in, reading the, the uh, uh, family, um, um, the home study ahead of time done by a psychologist helps, but you can't just defer to them. But going in and deciding, okay, I'm going to decide the fate of this four-year-old mm-hmm. uh, based on what I hear in two or three days of trial on the witness stand and this home study, I could be making a big mistake. And so you prep for those, but you go in with a clenched stomach and you hope that you have done the right thing and uh, I, you do lose sleep on that before and after and hope that you have done the right thing. And yes, there's visitation, but still you're primarily putting them in one home for the majority of the time. And that's one of the reasons when I had a chance to uh, make this job shift, I was happy to do it. I don't hear any federal judges don't do divorce cases, mm. and I don't miss doing that. My worst nightmare is that at some point down the road, uh, somebody comes in to, to me or sees me in the supermarket or whatever uh, who, who was a child in a divorce case I heard and I made the wrong decision. But they come up to me and say, in the worst case scenario, A, uh, you believed my father and not my mother and you left me in a home where I was abused or mm-hmm. the opposite, my mother was lying, my father never did anything to me, you denied me uh, being raised and being close to my father uh, because you were wrong. That's never happened, but that, that would just be awful if somebody mm-hmm. came up to mm-hmm. me and said that. Do you... Do you um Find yourself consciously aware of, like, for example, you know, it's the natural tendency from, in most cases, unless the father is horrible, <laughs> um, for a male judge to, to identify with the father and to imagine what it would be like um, if he were in the father's shoes. Do you, do you find yourself, did you find yourself aware of that and, and um, having to Particularly, you know, I question yourself. Am I yeah. am I finding it? Am I saying that the child should spend more time with the father because because I would feel bad if I were that father? That kind of thing. I don't think I have. I could be wrong. I don't think I have that built-in bias, and I don't think I viewed it that way. And maybe part of the reason for that is the home I grew up in. My father was was very bad. Uh, as far as being a father, he was abusive somewhat to the children, but definitely to my mother. And so I grew up with a wonderful mother, a caring, uh, loving, gentle mother, and an explosively uh, uh, a man with a hair-trigger temper. Um, and so I think you, as a judge, you're aware. I got to be. I got to be fair on this, and I can't go. I, I never felt like I had that built-in putting myself in the father's position. Maybe oh. that's wrong, but I, I don't think I did. Okay. Well, then, do you think it's made you more likely to? Uh, to well, I'm hearing we have to take another break. <laughs> you can have okay. a break to think about. It. More likely to um, to like when a mother does claim that the father is abusive, more likely to 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 agree with that and and rule in her favor. I don't think so. Maybe I'm deluding myself. Uh I think I was aware of that enough to to check that at the door and be sure Uh that didn't enter in, or at least I tried to. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's self-evaluation, and maybe I'm looking at myself through rose-colored glasses. I don't know. All right. Well, um, we we need to take a break now. My guest is um, Judge Robert Braithwaite. His book is called Have Gamble Will Travel?, 
And uh, it's a national park judge reflects on truth, justice, and why every juror deserves a donut. I don't want to forget to ask you about that. All right. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Hi, I'm Sam Nussbaum, WellPoint's Chief Medical Officer. We proudly support the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together to provide children with a healthier start in life. Visit marchofdimes.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here with Judge Robert Braithwaite, the author of um, a new book called um, Have Gamble, Will Travel. And um, Have Gamble, Will Travel... A national park judge reflects on truth, justice, and why every juror deserves a donut. We might as well get to the donut. Get that out of the way. Why does every juror deserve a donut? Because <laughs> it makes them happier. It makes me happier. And the reason I started giving them donuts, I was at a judicial conference, and they had a judge from uh, New Jersey who was talking about substantial things about jurors and how to treat them and, and some suggestions on running jury trials. And I'd run them at that point. And he said, if you don't remember anything else from my presentation, okay. remember to buy donuts for your jurors. And I thought, well, that's dumb, and started looking at the agenda to see what else, what other breakout group I could go to. But I stayed, and he had some really good advice. And he said, look, uh, we threaten jurors with contempt. They can go to jail if they don't show up. We bring them in. We herd them around. Uh, you'd be surprised how, how much better that feels if, Instead of sticking them in a room after they've gone through personal questions, what magazines do you read? Are you married? How many times you've been married? Why? Do, you know all these intrusive questions. Yeah. Then we stick them in a room with uh, some Dixie cups and some tepid water. Just at least buy them some donuts. Hmm. So, and the state of Utah at that point had started polling jurors after trials. So I had a selfish motive. Uh, should this judge be be? This is a good judge. He'd be retained on the bench, and I well, yeah. Let's let's make sure they're happy. <laughs> so I started buying donuts. They didn't know it was from me, and uh, for the bailiff, and they'd put them in the jury room. And if you got a bunch of chocolate donuts or cho- or nuts sprinkled on them, or plain or glazed, and and some juice, it's a lot nice than being stuck in a room for yeah. a half hour with nothing. And then I noticed that they seemed to like them, so I'd buy an extra sack with three or four in for me and the bailiff and the clerk. And and so that kept them happy. That's part of a chapter that goes into more than just that. It, it talks about what to do when you get your jury notice, uh-huh. some things to watch out for, uh, some tips on sticking up for yourself, but mm-hmm. not thinking you're more important than the other jurors. And I can touch on that if you want, or maybe that'll kill too much time. Um 
Well, I'll ask you a question about what do you think about um, uh, there are two trials, the James Holmes trial and the Boston Marathon trial, where um, people, the defense attorneys, have been trying to get the cases out of the out of that jurisdiction because of saying how difficult it is to find unbiased jurors. What do you think about that? I can't comment on that specific on those specific cases since they're ongoing. I can tell you that when I I uh, tried some cases here, in particular a death penalty case with. Um, um, coverage just in the local daily newspaper, I was surprised by the number of people, uh, doubt this is true with the Boston Marathon, but but it had been on the front page, uh, the number of people who had not read about it, hmm. and a lot of people who who uh, had read but but said they hadn't formed an opinion, they could go off the evidence produced in court, not read anything more, and, and not take into consideration what they'd read in the newspaper. And, and then, of course, on that kind of a trial, you bring in so many jurors that, that they can, any with any potential bias, I think, were, were weeded out. And so, I, you know, you'd ha- you have to do that on cases that have received publicity. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so, yeah, you mentioned the death penalty case before, um, that that was, that you had to, in the end, decide the verdict for it? Yeah, I had, in my 16-year state career, I had all or part of five different Campbell homicide cases, and by that I mean two of them, I bound them over after preliminary hearing for trial in front of a different judge, and then three I had to come to, to the end. And in one of them, the attorneys just shocked me by saying, we stipulate that we do not, both sides, we do not want a jury to determine hmm. death penalty or not. We want you to. And I said, well, I'm not going to do that. Hmm. Uh, and they said, yeah, there's a new law in the books. And they quoted it, and it was. Uh, Utah law It's no longer there, but it was at the time of the trial. Huh. It said they could do that. And it was uh, rendering that decision was the worst day of my professional life. It was an awful thing to go through. And what, for, and does, for me, which is nothing compared to what the victim and everybody right. else had gone through. Well, and so what did you decide? I uh, I imposed the death penalty, and hmm. I can't say any more than that because it was a horrible, uh, gruesome case with all kinds of extra things beyond quote just end quote the murder. Um, but that case is on appeal and. Uh, uh, and in front of an, another judge, I don't know who, but I do know it's on appeal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must have been really uh, difficult. It was. I mean, do you sometimes, certainly with a death penalty case, but even in, in other, like like the custody cases or any kind of case, um, you know, I'm sure less so for a parking ticket, but do you, um, do you feel, uh, and even when it isn't your, you know, when there's a jury involved, um, as well, do you feel um, bad? <laughs> I don't know what the. Do you, does it haunt you? Do you feel um, sometimes? Sometimes uh, it, it's it's bad, and I feel uh, really torn. And other times I don't. Let me give you a good example. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I did divorce cases, and it involved uh, child custody and property distribution. Uh, people will fight sometimes over property distribution uh, almost as much as over the kids. Mm -hmm. It's really exasperating. And I would tell them in court with a record running, Mm -hmm. I'm going to lose sleep over deciding where to put these children, but you're fighting over all these assets. And some of it is trivial. Sometimes I remember a case where they're arguing over who got the hand-engraved toilet roll holder. <laughs> I had a case where they had seven Corvettes, and they were for fighting over who got which Corvette. Huh. And and I would tell them, A, I'm going to lose sleep over where the kids go. B, I am, I am not going to lose sleep or care about property distribution. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and be fair. I'm going to try and, and split it down the middle so that you each get But I am not going to worry about whether the Samsung TV I gave you is 
equal value to the RCA I gave you uh-huh, or uh-huh, whatever. Uh-huh. And so there's a lot of cases. You, you give it your best shot. You, you do your best, but you're not going to lose sleep over it. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's amazing how people will pay attorneys, I mean, pay much more uh, because yes. of the time that it takes to argue over these little things. So the amount that they wind up paying their attorney could well have paid for whatever it is that Absolutely. they're arguing as far as the property because it's just about control. Right. Um, what are some of the other, what are some of the funny <laughs> uh, experiences, funny cases that you've had to deal with? Um, one, I probably should have put in the book, but I didn't. Uh, there was a bank robbery in St. George. I'll try and be quick on this. A guy goes in, he hands a note. It says, uh, I have a gun. Give me all of your money. Uh, the teller gives him nine $100 bills. He runs out of the building. The assistant bank manager runs out. This being in a small town in Utah. This is in St. George, actually, which isn't that small. But anyway, stops somebody in the drive through lane, says, follow that car, call it in, give the cops the license plate number. The, the customer does. Uh, the cops converge on the car on I-15, catch it just as it's about to take off south towards Las Vegas, stop it, uh, arrest the guy, take him to the jail, do the strip search. When when he takes off all of his clothes and, and takes off his his underpants, out of his out of the crotch of his jockey shorts falls nine one hundred dollar bills and a note that says, "I have a gun. Give me all your money." So, so they were able to. <laughs> I catch mean, it. how dumb was that? Yeah, he pled guilty and was sentenced. <laughs> yeah, how dumb was it to keep the note <laughs> with yes, the money? Yeah, how dumb was it to keep the note? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's just like this this uh, rash of crimes, like rapes and so on, where people take photographs of the of the of the crime of themselves, yeah, of the scratches. crime victim, and all of that. What do you make of that? I I. I, I guess their ego or their stupidity just goes to... I had a case, and this one is in the book, where I get a call and, and the base jumpers, people who jumped from fixed objects, had jumped from cliffs in Zion National Park, uh, parachuted to the bottom, that's illegal in national parks, were arrested, and then they come to court and they've got a plea bargain worked out. It's it's easier to go to trial and to... to uh, <laughs> assert your innocence if you haven't filmed the escapade and then posted it on the mm-hmm. Internet where people like the prosecutor can download it and it shows you and your parachute and, and or your gear and you're jumping off and then afterwards, uh, you know, it, it, if you're going to do it, it's not, it's not smart uh-huh. to record the crime and then post it on the Internet. I, I don't know. I don't understand. Well, I know it's this selfie culture run amok. Um, I mean, this sense that people have that that like the the internet isn't real, or you know, it's it can't affect you in real life. Or right. Um, I mean, it's it is uh, it is absurd. Um, you know, you mentioned before about going to um, after you became a judge, going to school for two weeks. What what is the general? And I guess I don't know whether it depends upon what kind of judge you become, whether it's a circuit judge or a, or like the Utah Supreme Court or whatever. But what what does distinguish? What do judges? What courses? What what do judges do to make them qualified to be judges beyond law school and becoming a a qualified attorney? Their their practice the practice that they've. Uh had as an attorney and and the reputation that they've built uh, that that's what goes with them to their interviews in the state system they have committees of of uh, laymen and attorneys that interview the applicants narrow it to five judges the five judges are then presented to the governor and the governor interviews and picks one of the five that's how it works at least in Utah that's how it works and what and what education do you then have? What additional education do you then go through once you're picked? Very minimal. Usually, it's just uh, some how to and helpful, but like mine was just 
two weeks. Mostly what you go off is what you've seen as a practicing attorney in courtrooms with different judges, and you inevitably have thought, I like the way this judge and this judge run things. I am not impressed with the way this guy, either procedurally or with their temperament, uh, and you vow you're not going to be that way. In my in my instance, the judge that I had appeared before most loved to have large audiences, ran his, his docket so that you might have the first case, one in the middle. Anyway, it was just a nightmare, and everybody ended up having to come to the courthouse for the whole day. My, oh. my way of handling it, based on my experience with him, Oh, I need to wrap it up. Yeah. What's to do just the opposite? Do the incarcerated people first. Do the short items earliest so you get the most people on the road and back to their lives. Uh-huh. And, and the long ones last. That's interesting how the judge wanted to, like, like you wanted to be a, te- a television judge. You wanted I to think have, so. You wanted to have a large audience. That's a very clever way of doing it, making you wait. Uh-huh. But we do need to take another break. My guest is Robert Bracewhite. He is a has been a circuit judge, district judge, juvenile judge, pro tem Utah Supreme Court judge, and now a part-time magistrate judge. We will be back in a minute. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, with Judge Robert Braithwaite. His new book is called um, Have Gavel, Will Travel. And um, I wanted to ask you... um, about your experience, I know right before we started, you mentioned that you had had one um, experience with a psychiatric expert in a murder trial in the mitigation phase. What was that? What do you think of psychiatric expert witnesses? And, and how did that, um, maybe you could use that trial, that case as an example? Um, I, I don't have much experience, so I don't think I have much of an opinion. I don't have a well, how was in that case? Just how you know? Because I'll case, be honest, uh, I think uh, she was a, a, not particularly helpful. Uh, she was too much no objectivity in advocating, which I, I guess that's her job uh, for the defendant, and that he'd been deprived of all things by growing up on an Indian reservation and not being having access to a mall. <laughs> not having access to a mall. Uh huh. <laughs> that's like is that like the reverse of the um oh what was it called again the uh the defense for the kid who was um oh in fact I did a show on it the kid who was um who had was given too much oh yeah maybe i don't know it it just seemed odd and we went on to the next question <laughs> and it it really didn't play much. It just was a head scratcher to me. But but uh, when I read your bio before coming on, I thought, oh, I don't know much about um, expert. I, I've had different expert witnesses, but not of your 
extensive uh, forensic and psychiatric uh, viewpoint and training. Well, I mean, there are, um, you know, what, what I guess one of my pet peeves with psychiatric expert witnesses, psychiatrists or psychologists, expert witnesses, um, is the ones who don't do enough, um, enough, Research enough background, you know, enough meeting with the people long enough, um, doing enough an in-depth kind of study of the whole case and the whole situation and the whole and the person's psyche and so on, and just kind of come and and or don't read all the records, just kind of come and give these off-the-cuff um, kinds of uh, testimony, okay. and uh, it really gives the profession a bad name. Okay, well that that makes sense, but I I can't claim to have practical experience with, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. with that kind of a situation. Um, well, what else? What are some of the, I mean, we don't have, let's see how much time, we don't have a whole bunch of time left, but what, what is one of the cases that you talk about in your book that you think that you would like to talk about? I've been asking you all these questions, so what, what would you like to talk about? <laughs> uh, one, of the, one of the kind of interesting things that's, that's happened all over the West, and sometimes back East now, is... Uh, there are mar- commercial marijuana grows, and they're taking place in national parks, national forests, federal land. There's always the accusation that they are uh, Mexican drug cartels or organized crime. I don't know if that's the case. I've never seen that proven in in a case. But in one year, I think in 2010, we had 17 different commercial marijuana grows busts that, that made it to my court. Uh, and they're very highly organized marijuana grows, uh, and they're commercial. They have plastic tubing. They have vats of fertilizer and pesticides. Uh, they're armed. They have armed guards with AK-47s huh. to guard the perimeter. Uh, they're usually found by somebody simply stumbling onto them, a backpacker or a deer hunter. And with GPS, the people, if they're smart, and so far they have been, we haven't had anybody killed, like as has happened, I believe, in California, Northern California, or or on the border of uh, Arizona in the uh, Oregon Pipe National Park where people have been shot. Anyway, they retreat. They tell the local police. They've got GPS coordinates sometimes. They put together a drug task force with the DEA, and they bust them. But they leave behind a real mess where they have been with uh, chemical spills. They don't take their... If they aren't discovered and they just walk off, they always walk off and just abandon them. They leave a real mess behind with all of the tubing and the and the, hmm. and the chemical spills, and they cut down trees. And they what they'll do a lot of times is cut from the ground up a certain distance to allow more sun in for the plants, uh, but so that when helicopters go over the top, they can't see down through the canopy and and see that. The last couple of years, they did so many busts for three or four years there that uh, um, I think they've kind of gone downhill from that. I don't, I don't think they filed one of those last summer in 2014. I, I think they just move around and move on to, to somewhere else. Uh, but that's one of the things, too. People will show up in my court all the time from California uh, with a medical a license for uh, marijuana, but it, it doesn't travel with you. Mm, it's uh, but, only but for the, the state federal government is backing off on prosecution of marijuana. It, they're not nearly pushing, pushing simple possession misdemeanor offenses like they used to. Well, I think in 10 years, if not sooner, um, people are going to realize that this is a big, bad mistake um, allowing, I mean, you know, I, I definitely think that people with certain medical problems should have access to marijuana uh, for certain pain issues, and just there are certain me- medical conditions where it can be helpful. But, sure. but on the whole, you know, uh, making it legal and, and encourage, essentially encouraging people to use it, um, I think is a very bad idea. And I, I say that from my own experience working in a psychiatric hospital. Um, where young, usually it would be, you know, young either teenagers or um, early 20s, where um, people have started using marijuana, sometimes not that many times and sometimes chronically, um, and become psychotic. I mean, it is not without, it's, it's, not okay. without its, its downfall, and I think that this, 
people, it's, we've just gone way too far to the other extreme about thinking that this is, you know, All right. that's a great an idea. Inter- that's an interesting point of view, and, I'm, and you have obviously expertise and experience, and, and it's interesting for me to hear that. I feel like I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do, which is uh, it's against the law to smoke a joint in Zion National Park. They bring the case in. I don't impose my personal opinion, which is that this is this is this tidal wave of marijuana use. It's just unstoppable. But but I impose the fine, the standard fine, and and we go from there. But but that's interesting what you just said. Yes, I mean you know it can happen. Of course, at any age. I want to clear that up. It can happen to people at any age once they start using it. But it's it it for people who have. Uh, a gene, a genetic predisposition to schizophrenia or a manic depressive illness, bipolar, or just or or borderline people, anybody with with a vulnerability, and then even people who aren't vulnerable genetically, but who um, who are vulnerable by their experiences, you know, unstable, um, or even people who were perfectly stable, but get into a chronic habit, and then it it makes people lethargic. I mean, if it's not if it doesn't create an out and out psychosis, it certainly does make people feel lethargic and, and apathetic and not as ambitious, and we certainly don't need that happening to more people in America today right. you know, with the recession and, and the difficulty finding jobs and so on as it is. Okay. So, <laughs> I don't know how we... <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I think the whole thing is very unfortunate. Well, um, what would you say to somebody, um, to a little boy, let's say, or a little girl, um, <laughs> about... If they asked you, you know, if you like what you do, and would you recommend to them that they become a judge? Or how should they decide if they should become a judge? I think they should follow their passion. Uh, I've got a daughter who's an author. I've got a daughter who's a, a, uh, a chemistry professor. I've got a son who's a fish biologist with fish and game, and a daughter who collected goose poop up in Alaska last summer as part of a wildlife uh, um, sciences major, and and I, and they're all doing what really interests them, and uh, and that's what they should do. And and if somebody's interested in the law and interested in being a judge, then by all means, go for that. I think most people, not everybody, but most people I know that went into law uh, like that or pretty quickly found out they didn't. Uh, and I hear the music playing, so follow your dream, I guess. <laughs> well, let me just ask you: Where should people go? Where should people go to um, get your book? That's the most important question here. <laughs> okay, it's available at Barnes and Noble in Utah, or maybe in the West. It's on Amazon dot com and Barnes and Noble dot com, and it's called Have Gabba Will Travel. That's easier to remember than spelling my last name, probably. <laughs> Yes, Have Gavel, Will Travel, a National Park Judge Reflects on Truth, Justice, and Why Every Juror Deserves a Donut. And I, 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 agree, with, I agree with the donuts. <laughs> to be friends for <laughs> witnesses, too. Well, Judge Braithwaite, thank you so much for, um, for sharing um, you know, what, really, what really goes on in the heads of judges. judges. And I, uh, I can only hope that more judges are um, as honest and, and upfront as you are. So thank you very much for being a guest on Dr. Carol's Couch. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. It's been a pleasure, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 